All right. So our three movies today we will be discussing are... um, We're going to have to edit this part. Yeah. Welcome back to the Hollywood Video Guys podcast. This is your host, Randy, alongside my fellow co-hosts, Mike. Hey. And Don. Hello, friends. All right. Uh, so, you guys see any good movies lately? I've been on a uh, bit of a Michael Douglas kick lately, Randall, which has been pretty funny. Ah, uh, yeah. So, get- so last night I watched uh, Fatal Attraction for the first time. After you had recommended it because you told me about the series that I didn't realize was a thing. Oh, yeah, it was, it's a good series, too. Yeah, it was pretty good. I liked it. Yeah, so it was a really good movie. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. And then uh, last night I also watched one called, uh, I think it was called The Star Patrol. It's really bizarre title. But in the movie, he's uh, Michael Douglas is the judge. And these criminals are getting out for like technicalities. Like in one instance, the detective didn't pull uh, a lever. Or, or excuse me, they, they pulled uh, evidence out of a trash can. But the trash man didn't pull the lever so technically like he was you know, invading his privacy. So Michael Douglas is a judge who just gets, you know, blindsided with all these technicalities and ends up becoming sort of a vigilante. <laughs> really bizarre, interesting movies from 1982, but it's definitely worth a watch. I've never heard of that. Uh, but I do remember you talking to me yesterday when you were watching Fatal Attraction and you were saying that uh, Michael J- Douglas should be his own genre. He really does. He's got, like, and, he's, and I knew exactly what you meant yeah. by that. <laughs> yeah. A middle-aged white guy with a woman scorned. Yeah, with some sort of deceit going on, some sort of mystery. It's great. Yeah, he's, some he's sort really of incredibly thrillers. beautiful woman that he's like having some really steamy sex with on camera. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. How about you, Mike? Um, I was, you know, I'm gonna highlight uh, because I was thinking about this the other day. We had shows at Hollywood Video as well as movies, and there's a show that I've been watching a lot that I, I think I want to put in there because you know we did like. We had all the seasons of like twenty four out there, and we had you know disc so, by disc. Yeah, exactly. So I, this really feels like a show that would have been at Hollywood Video. It's called Killing It, and it's on um, it's on Peacock. Sorry, it's on Peacock, and it's a show about. I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but basically, it's a, a show about like this real event where in Florida they were having a competition for people to kill this type of boa constrictor that was a invasive species. And so this guy is trying to do that to raise enough money to make his own um, saw palmetto farm, which is like a supplement. And it's all, and it's hilarious. It's got Craig, is it Craig David, Craig Davis? Uh, what's the guy from The Office? Um, Craig Robinson? Craig Robinson, I'm so sorry. Craig David is a singer. Uh, Craig Robinson, he's hilarious in it. And it's just, it's a really good show. It's super funny. It's got a lot of twists and turns throughout. It's a big comedy. Uh, and I'm on, it's on season two now, and season two is so funny. It has Tim from Tim and Eric's awesome show. I don't know if you guys watch Tim and Eric at all. Uh, I know of them. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's in it. And there's a bunch of other kind of semi-famous people in it. But uh, it's so funny. So I have been watching that. I recommend it. Everybody should watch it. Uh, Yeah. And just uh, aside from the movies that we will be discussing today, which were probably the best things that I watched this week. But there was another strong contender from yesterday. For the first time, I watched Blockers with John Cena and Leslie Mann. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, I had a really good time with it. I thought it was a really solid comedy. John Cena's funny in it. The why am I? I don't know why I'm blanking on his name, but he looks like he's in the Wahlberg family or 
<laughs> Mark Wahlberg? Uh, no, it's Could not you Mark Wahlberg. That was it. It was like, but, oh yeah, Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> yeah, it, it looks like he would maybe like his skinny and taller brother or something. But I, I got you. I got you. Was, was it? I forget his name. Oh, was Ike Baron Holtz. There it is. We've seen like Road Trip and all those two early mm-hmm. Todd movies. I might be thinking no, of the only thing I really remember him was um, Suicide Squad. He was like the prison guard in Suicide Squad, the oh. first one. Um, but he's been in a bunch of other stuff too. Mm-hmm. He's kind of famous. But yeah, this movie felt like it was 2018's American Pie, complete with the swap of uh, genders, where it's the girls who are making a virginity lose their virginity pact after prom, and then the parents find out about it and they're trying to intervene and stop them. Hence the name Blockers. Mm-hmm. And I should also note a little detention of detail in that uh, key title, or excuse me, title art. There is that uh, there is a rooster. Oh yeah, exactly. Above the word Blockers. Yeah. Just in case anybody wasn't sure what was going on. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So with that said, uh, today we had a special episode. We're going to be discussing some of the best movies from the master of suspense himself, Alfred Hitchcock. Um, If you have not seen Alfred Hitchcock movies, I would strongly recommend you do so. The master of suspense was not just a clever name. (laughs) His movies definitely feel like they hold up at least... The ones we're discussing today definitely hold up. Mm-hmm. And so what, what, when did you first start watching Alfred Hitchcock movies? Yeah, I actually watched my first Hitchcock movie really young, like seven or eight. It was The Birds. Uh, my mom rented it and my grandparents loved it. Uh, scared me. Actually scared me. I mean, I was seven or eight. And just the idea of like these birds coming and like pecking you to death is super scary. Uh, it's it's probably not one of his better ones. It's actually pretty famous, and uh, the, the special a good movie. yeah, and the special effects of the time were pretty cool. So there was like parts that are like kind of not doesn't hold up very well. There's parts that are better, um, but that was my first big uh, Hitchcock movie. Was definitely Birds, the Birds, yeah. the Birds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how about you? Uh, for me, I actually had more familiarity with him from the Alfred Hitchcock show exactly. that was on because so. For me, a typical Monday night when I was a kid was I'd watch Monday Night Raw and then Nick at Night after with my dad. And usually there was like Taxi on or something. And then I was immersing Alfred Hitchcock because I grew up watching The Twilight Zone, which is still one of my favorite shows ever. Awesome. So I'd actually seen The Hitchcock Show long before I'd seen a movie. But the first movie I'd seen from him was actually one we'll talk about today, which is Psycho. All right. Yeah, and uh, just like you, for me, I my first memories of Psycho is that show, that intro to the show, and that music. You mean Alfred, and, Alfred Hitchcock, right? Yes, okay. the Alfred Hitchcock presents. Is that what the show was? Yeah, and yeah. I think I don't know. If, I, thought, I don't know if there's two, but it was presents the one I remember seeing. Yeah, yeah. the one where he'd step into the silhouette. Yep. Yeah. Play yeah, the music iconic music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then for me, I'm trying to remember what my first movie I was. It probably was Psycho, and then I did watch a lot of the other ones in short order. Obviously, I knew everyone knows about Psycho. Where. At least our generation, everyone knew about Psycho growing up, even if they had never seen it. With the shower scene, it's probably the most parodied scene in maybe cinema history. And I just remember I got on a little bit of an Alfred Hitchcock kick a little over a decade ago and been a fan of his movies. Uh, is there any other, besides the ones we're going to talk about today, do you have any like honorable mentions that you would you were thinking of picking? Uh, well, I was going to go with the birds, honestly, because of how the impact it had on me. But it was also like uh, visually very interesting. And um, I really liked the concept of it. It reminded me a lot of like the movies that you see now with like M. Night Shyamalan. Remember that one where like the 
the plants are just killing people and making them kill the happening. Oh, the happening. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it was kind of like the happening. There was, I liked it because I feel like now, whenever there's a movie like The Birds, it's always this uh, 10 minute long discussion with a scientist that talks about like why this is happening and in the birds it was just happening and like nobody knew why and there was no like ancient curse or like scientific reason it was just these birds are going crazy killing people and like they're animals yeah and that was that's what i really liked about it was that you didn't need that and it wasn't necessary for the plot to be good was i didn't need any history lesson on like the the science of the birds or anything i just they're just going crazy Mm. (laughs) that was really fun so yeah uh, the birds would be one for sure you know what's funny is that movie was actually based on an event that occurred not too far from here actually yeah back in the early 1900s um how about you any honorable mentions for you don yeah i would say rear window um yes because so a fun fact is that when you know we worked at Hollywood video a common thing was we'd take a vhs tape and go watch it on our breaks mm-hmm. it would take like a week to watch a two-hour movie but i was on a hitchcock kick back then which is how i discovered more of his movies so i would say rear window is one i watched back then and then uh strangers on a train is a really good That's one i don't know if many people talk about that one i was gonna mention the birds too yeah. Um, Rear Window is definitely my biggest honorable mention. I do feel that it's the only movie that could maybe make its crack its case into the top three that we're going to be discussing today. I'd say I Rear would, Window. Yeah. I would uh, say another so. one I liked, you know, you did mention Stranger in a Train. So that's another good one. Another one that I really enjoyed was Rope, which they did a good job of filming this movie where it felt like it was one take, like it was almost like a stage show, but there obviously wasn't. You could There was moments where the camera would maybe zoom on something and then zoom back out, and obviously they created a new take. Um, that was a really enjoyable one. Mm-hmm. What am I doing here? happen well you fell into san francisco bay i i uh, tried to dry your hair as best i could your things are in the kitchen they'll be dry in a few minutes come on over by the fire and the first movie we will be discussing today is my favorite hitchcock movie it is from 1958, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Vertigo is a 1958 American psychological thriller film directed and produced by Alfred Hitchcock. The story was based on the 1954 novel Diantre Les Morts by Bouillot Narcjack, <laughs> uh, I think. The screenplay was written by Alec Koppel and Samuel A. <clears throat> Taylor. The film stars James Stewart as former police detective John Scotty Ferguson, who has retired because an incident in the line of duty has caused him to develop acrophobia, an extreme fear of heights, and vertigo, a false sense of rotational movement. Scotty is hired by an acquaintance, Galvin Esther, as a private investigator to follow Gavin's wife, Madeline, Kim Novak, who is behaving strangely. Okay, so this movie, I did not really know what to expect when I first watched it, and I do remember feeling at first that's probably not going to be my kind of movie. It's a little bit slow to start. But then I just became drawn in. A lot of it is because of the way that the, the film is shot. Um, it's pretty local to me. So it is pretty interesting to see those same sights that I'm used to seeing. And you can tell from watching this movie that this might be the most personal of Alfred Hitchcock's movies. I don't know if you guys feel the same way. I think so. He's always been, uh, you know, a lot of his movies have sort of different themes. Like we were talking earlier about the birds. Like that was all on, uh, I think it was Bodega Bay. Yeah. So he really loves that kind of scenery. And I think Vertigo really feel, feel, or, you know, fills that space since all of, a lot of the scenes in this movie are just gorgeous. Yeah. Yes. It, this, I, I think this is the most visually pleasing 
of the three movies that we're going to discuss today. And I would, you... yeah, and the most varied, yeah. Well, maybe maybe the next one will be a little bit more varied. But this one, it's like I said, everything's very distinct. Yes. Yeah, it's a lot like you know, like he was saying, because we're we're um, so near San Francisco, especially, and they even come down to our neck of woods at, at certain points in the movie. Um, but we know those locations, and it's cool to see it through a fifties lens. Um, that's especially you know, that's, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty neat to see the same. It's, it's a little time capsule, you know, sighting <clears throat> to what it was back then. Yeah, you don't the, the, sky, the skyscrapers we were used to seeing now obviously didn't exist then. So kind of seeing that uh, in the fifties again is is pretty cool. It's a pretty cool a visual. And then uh, did you feel watching this that it was a personal movie from Hitchcock? Because like, he has kind of a reputation with s- some of the girls maybe. So this the whole overarching <clears throat> theme, which I feel was very obvious to everyone who watches it, the theme of this movie is obsession. Yeah. And that would be obsession from James Stewart's character Scotty towards Madeline. Or even to a lesser extent, his... His, B- his BFF, essentially, Midge, Midge, who's been obviously one- into Scotty for probably her whole life. And she's pretty obsessed with him, even though he's kind of got her in the friend zone, so to speak. Yeah, ultimate friend zone. Shout out to Midge. Ultimate friend zone. <laughs> Midge is probably the best. Well, for me, she's probably the most uh, likable character in this movie. I think. Yeah, she's just... A good friend, like, and, and she's the one that you would want Jimmy Stewart to get with because she gets actually understands him the best out of anybody. But she's obsessed with him. She really is, and it, <clears throat> you can see that it doesn't really. Uh, Scotty doesn't care for it too much. I feel like he tolerates her, and oh, probably at this point in his life, he's pretty alone as it is. So having that companionship is is nice for him. Yeah, and ultimately, when he's hired to follow this guy's wife, this. Guy's wife is Kim Novak, who is in contention for just the most stunningly gorgeous woman on in screen history. Yeah, uh, she's an absolute beauty. So you can completely understand how Scotty would be obsessed with her. Now, that being said, and this is my pick for my favorite for <clears throat> Alfred Hitchcock movie, is that there are some things that are hard for me to get past, and one of them is the fact that. James Stewart is about twice the age of Kim Novak in this. And I noticed that this is kind of a trend in a lot of those older movies where you have the the Hollywood leading man who's been around for like 20-something years. His love interest has to be some young scar- starlet and not someone who's more age-appropriate, which even Midge would have been like... I think that that actress is probably around like 15 years younger than Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, I, you know, you, you mentioned that to us re- when we first started watching this about like the age difference. And I was gonna, I went into it thinking that I'd be, it would be like a big thing for me. But then I realized like because it's the 50s, everybody looks old. So like <laughs> it, it didn't really bother me as much as I thought it was going to because I'm like, yeah, he definitely looks like he's in his like 60s. Yeah. But she looks like she's in her like late 30s, early 40s. So I don't really know anymore. Like, what am I supposed to think about this? I would say it, it was it was noticeable, but not to the extent where I thought I was like, oh, this is really weird because I'm also, I think I have that same perception where a lot of these older movies, a lot of things don't age well. And yeah. particularly it's like, you know, how the role of, of a woman is in, in these relationships. And it's, it's like you said, it's always some... Um, middle-aged to late 50s looking guy with yeah. some woman who's 25 or under or whatever and i don't think i noticed it initially but at the same time like i say it's just in my mind i already have that perception of like the 50s maybe even the 60s too you know 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, also, there's the fact that maybe Scotty was in like his late 30s. Did you see how much that guy drinks in that movie? He probably <laughs> every single problem was met with alcohol. Maybe, maybe that's just what it looks like when you're that when you drink like that. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Did, did he smoke in this? I don't know if he was uh, I don't a smoker. Remember I if he smoked? I know the guy. other guy smoked. Maybe so that's what I'm like, confusing with. Every guy, except for maybe in in. Uh, Psycho. Every guy that movies that Hitchcock does are like heavy drinkers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was actually gonna mention that later on. Was that there was only one movie of the one that we discussed that did not have those stereotypical men being men drinking scotch, smoking a yeah. cigarette or a cigar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> now, with that being said, what are your thoughts on the movie? We'll start with you, Mike. Yeah, I out of the three, this is the one I, I I don't know. They're all fine. They're all not just fine. They're all amazing in their own ways. This is probably the one that I thought of the three was the weakest. Definitely not. We're not ranking these obviously because they're all amazing. Yeah, there's no but, way you but, do that. But but like yeah, it'd just be impossible. But this one, I felt like the plot got extremely <laughs> convoluted at points, or I mean not convoluted, uh, unnecessarily uh, like unnecessary things. The plots in the movie got uh, parts of the plot got really unnecessary for me to understand it, and it kind of ruined some of the movie for me. Um, so that that for me made it less enjoyable. It was it was way more way too much showing or way too much telling and not showing. I guess was the problem. And in the other movies that we're going to see, they they just let the plot play out how it should and expect expect the audience to figure it out this one it seemed like no we gotta like show the audience exactly what's happening at all times or they're gonna be extremely confused and like you know don't install our intelligence we could figure this out too yeah um i although i will disagree with that because when we do get to another movie there is a part of where i have that same issue it's only a minor one Mm -hmm. (laughs) and how about you don how what are your general feelings on this film so i this was the movie i I had originally seen at holiday video in the break room because i vividly remember Taking the VHS back there for like a week, and uh, I, I really like I really liked it, but I'm kind of with Mike in the sense, and I was texting you guys about this before, where it's the plot. I really like the plot, but I think this is one of the movies that is a little too drawn out for the pace, because I, I think yeah. it's a solid two hours, two hours and ten minutes. Uh, there. I think it's I think it's under two hours, ten minutes. So is it's it? not an exceedingly long movie. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't feel long or anything. I just feel like that the plot. It doesn't go at a pace that supports that runtime, you know. Like there, I really like the scenes where they are panning across all this, you know, the scenic vistas and everything, and it's it's shot amazingly well. It's just I think when it gets to the the climax of the movie, it's just it's just like a slow climb, and not in a bad way or anything. It's right, like, it's a slow burn. It's just a slower burn than I'd like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. yeah. This is definitely a, of the movies we're discussing. This is probably the slowest paced one. It's also one that's a little tough to recommend because it really depends on what you're looking for. Like, I don't think that this movie is one that I would be able to watch as easily as some of the others, but I do feel like if I'm in a certain mood and I want something a little more introspective, then this is just going to hit all the right notes. And it turned out that when I watched it, I was exactly in that mood because it still appealed to me very much. Uh, the, the, The plot contrivances, and there are a lot of them, I just feel like it's just a vehicle to elicit the emotions that you get from both James Stewart and Kim Novak as this movie goes on, because everyone knows that the the as Mike was saying, the sh- telling us not showing us at the midway part of this movie, there is a rather large uh, twist that occurs, yeah. and it's one that when after we had watched it, I remember asking or telling Mike that I really wish this reveal happened about maybe half hour later. 
like just kind of let it drag out let let uh, james stewart's obsession really shine through and and question uh yourself what like do i like this guy or not because like i feel for him he got in a really really awkward terrible situation he clearly loves this woman (laughs) but he starts to take it really far yeah and that it was very um, borderline uncomfortable at times. How like so? How much do you guys want to give away in these movies? Because they're seven years old. So you know, I would like, say we could I, talk about I it. Would right? say, yes, I would say on. that's okay. Okay, okay thank you. Pause so, right now. Yeah, go watch Vertigo. Yeah, yeah. Come back. Spoiler alert for a seventy-year-old movie. <laughs> um, but this is what I'll say: is that you're you're hundred percent right because when he thinks that he's seeing the woman that he had been obsessing with at the beginning of the film again and it's another person they don't do a they they do a disservice to the movie and the audience revealing that 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 the answer is yes it is the same person right away if it was a really that's if there's any critique in this movie and it's hitchcock so who am i to you know critique anything he's ever done but if there is a critique it's that let it go for a little bit because then you're like really invested in like is this this girl is he's just so obsessed that he's assuming this girl is him or her and she's actually not her at all uh but because they didn't do that it kind of takes away from that obsession you don't you're like well it's not really that much of an obsession because it is that girl so i would probably be freaking out too if i saw the woman that i fell in love with and then i saw her exact double in every single way and then i know it's her (laughs) yeah because it makes you think like if you didn't know it was her and you really thought that this was just some woman who just is lucky enough to look like Kim Novak's yeah. character Madeline, then you would be pretty horrified with James Stewart's character. Yeah. And I think that by the revealing it that way, even though you may feel it like as a neutral observer, like, oh, that's not okay. At the same time, is what she did okay? It's not. No. Because what she did is obviously much, much, much worse. So maybe in, uh, certain viewers would look at it and say, oh, she's had it coming to kind of you know, getting it put to her the way that James Stewart's doing it right now. I think the the other problem I have with the movie, and I don't want to call it a problem, it's just something that I would have, uh, I don't know, paced better, was when he starts to get those more obsessive qualities and he becomes more oppressive towards her, like when he, when they're out suit shopping for her. Oh, yeah. That's when he really becomes a prick. And, like, you can really see that he's, you know, really becoming forceful on her. Yeah. But it's like they, they had gotten to that point, and then all of a sudden... You know, it was a slow build to that, and all of a sudden, all of his obsessive qualities started to come through. Like, there wasn't so much... I feel like there could have been more breadcrumbs leading to that, you know, because it seems like once he discovers a secret that it's it's her, it's like a light switch, and all of a sudden, he's doing all these things the way he wants her to be, you know? It's also weird because if you're going to get this convoluted plot to kill your wife, why? how is making sure the woman who played your wife is no longer in the place where the the protagonist can find her. Like, why isn't that a part of your plan? That That's, is... <laughs> that is one of the most idiotic things this entire movie is like, why is she still in San Francisco? Why didn't he also kill her or give her like a plane ticket to Nova Scotia? <laughs> There's a lot of contrivances. Like I said, this, yeah. this movie is chock full of them. I guess back then you were just expected to just the shock value alone. You never questioned... Uh, the odd, the ins and outs of this, because there's so many questions I have. What if James Stewart? Okay, so basically, what happens? Spoiler alert: is about halfway through the movie, uh, Kim Novak's character, who's at this point being possessed by her old dead relative, or at least that's what James Stewart thinks. She runs up the the mission's bell tower, and 
on some sort of suicidal break. And he's trying to give chase, but all that acrophobia kicks in and he can't make it. He's like halfway up there before he hears a scream and he sees this woman fall out and out of the top of the bell tower onto the church below and dies. And then the, the film cuts away. And he's basically on trial. Not He's not on trial. It's to clear the husband for not reporting his wife's suicidal tendencies. Mm-hmm. And it almost sounds like he's blamed for it. Like, uh, he's not really legally liable for this, but he couldn't climb the bell tower and stop her. It's really his fault, but we just can't charge him with anything. But that being said, there's so many questions I have, so many what ifs. Mm-hmm. Like, what if he didn't just leave the area immediately are is that guy and kim novak still gonna come down at the stairs and there he is like yeah there's, there's just, a lot of them like that did, did he have his wife killed and then take her up to the top of the bell tower because that sounds pretty tough yeah and like when did he come up with this idea like you know like there's a how lot of- long was he waiting in the bell tower with his wife yeah, there's a <laughs> lot of like a lot of things in the movie where you're like well and that that's because the plot is the way it is where there has to be question marks because the plot is so ludicrous at times mm-hmm. that there has to be question marks to it. It's, it's definitely Hitchcock at his most is the best way to describe it. Yeah, it, it is. It's maybe not his best, but it's at his most. It's <laughs> his most absurd contrived plot. Yep. As far as murder stories go, it's his mo- most incredible camera work. Mm-hmm. That and shot in, um, maybe and Point. probably his best ending. I think it's just, it all comes together at the end for me, and I really, really appreciate this movie for what it is. The contrivances are just a vehicle to get to the nitty-gritty and the emotions that you see from Stuart and Novak. And you guys have anything else to say about this movie? No, it's I, I would revisit it again. It's just, it's like, um, I don't know if it was Mike who said it, or maybe you even said it Randy earlier, but uh, it's not one of those movies you could revisit as easily as others. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There is one on here that's easily re- revisitable for me at any time. Uh, this movie is one that's kind of in that category of something like Lost in Translation for me, where mm. there's just a certain mood I'm in, and then, it, oh, it, exactly. it hits. This, has yeah. a very this is exactly mood. what I want. Yeah, yeah you got to really want, like, want to watch this movie, uh, but it's very good, and though we kind of critiqued a little bit of like some of the plot elements of it, if you take it for what it is, it definitely is a great movie. I was also going to say finally that like I had not seen this movie until the us going to for this podcast. So it's also weird as a a fan. uh, You just realize how much like the Simpsons have ruined (laughs) Hitchcock for a a generation of fans because you can't watch any Hitchcock movie without thinking of the reference in the Simpsons to it Mm -hmm. always. So obviously with Vertigo, I was thinking of, uh, was it, um, principal Skinner going up the bell tower and that, yeah, that kind of got to me. And then, um, one more thing before we move on. So when this movie came out, it was kind of a a flop. It it didn't do very well. It was pretty heavily criticized maybe because of people with the plot contrivances and all that. But over the years, it started to become more and more loved, and including, I believe it's like 20, 2012, some European magazine that always has this rankings of films. Vertigo had dethroned Citizen Kane as the number one film of all time, according to them. And it's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of movies that do that where it's, you know, people are critical of it at the time, and all of a sudden there's some sort of fondness or newfound nostalgia for it yeah. 20 years down the line, or, you know, in this case... Yeah, and I think a lot of that is going back and and looking at it and realizing this is Hitchcock at his most personal and honest with the 
audience. Yeah, and Definitely for me, most. and for me, I would say I'm pr- I'd say I'm pretty critical about uh, current movies. So yeah. when I look at these movies and try to put them in context of what filmmaking was at the time, that's what impresses me more than some of the movies we'll see today. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, it's 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 more of that. It's like sometimes I'm overly critical, but in this case, like uh, this, there's a lot of fondness for this because it was shot wonderfully. It was it's an amazing mm-hmm. looking movie, and plots really well too. I just think it's. It's so like you said, it's it's a it's a Hitchcock plot. Like there's certain elements that had to be in there to cover whatever plot holes they could fill, you know. I know, I look vaguely familiar. Yes. You feel you've seen me somewhere before. Mm-hmm. Funny how I have that effect on people. It's something about my face. It's a nice face. You think so? I wouldn't say it if I didn't. Oh, you're that type. Honest. Not really. Good, because all these women frighten me. Why? I don't know. Somehow they seem to put me at a disadvantage. Because you're not honest with them. Exactly. Moving on, we are going to the next film. And Mike, why don't you tell us what you're going to talk about here? All right. Thanks, Randy. We're going to go and move on to our next movie in our Alfred Hitchcock festival of greatness and that's going to be north by northwest uh, this is the 1959 american spy thriller obviously alfred hawk uh, alfred hitchcock um directed it stars carrie grant eva marie saint and james mason this tells the tale of a mistaken identity with an innocent man pursued across the united states by agents of a mysterious organization trying to prevent him from blocking their plans to smuggle microfilm which contains government secrets out of the country this is one of the several Hitchcock films that features a music score by Bernard Herrmann and an opening title sequence by graphic designer Saul Bass. Uh, I really love this movie. I saw it like a year before, or like a couple years ago for the first time. And one of the things that I like about what we're doing, obviously without giving away like where our films are going, but I like how we have Hitchcock and we show all of the different facets of Hitchcock in this. Like we had a movie that was much more, uh, I would say Vertigo is like much more of like a suspense driven uh, thriller type. This is definitely like a spy um, drama, like high drama Kind of, uh, movie and a little bit of action, almost action, action comedy, yeah, yeah almost action it's, comedy. This is at a times. pretty funny movie. Yeah, it definitely has its uh-huh. moments, uh, and so I, I really appreciate that we can see the different styles that Hitchcock does for his movies depending on the genre that he's in. Uh, this one's great. the it, The pacing is perfect. Uh, Cary Grant is awesome in it. He's probably my favorite actor from that era of uh, film, the early, like the early going out of black and white into color. Um, era and so he's awesome in it. Ava Marie Saint is a great uh, actress, and then obviously um, the plot is just really really cool, and it goes in a lot of directions that I really enjoyed. So uh, with that said, though, I'm going to kind of get your guys' thoughts on this movie when you first saw it, or what you thought of it now, the last time you saw it. So um, I guess we'll go with Don first. So this was the first time I've seen this movie. I've I know it's uh, I know of it because you know it's been referenced in a lot of things, like you mentioned Simpsons, of course. Oh, a ton. Yeah. <laughs> There's one the infamous corn. scene, yeah, with the, <laughs> the cornfield and the plane. Yeah. So yeah, this was a, I, I'd watched this for the first time this week, and uh, I freaking love this movie. It's great. It was really good. So I, I really didn't read up on what it was about too much. I didn't get you know I, I didn't dig too much into see anything about the movie. And I'm glad I didn't because it was you know it, it took me by surprise. Like I didn't have any expectations, and it's just. It's a fantastic movie. Yeah. I loved everything about it. Well, you ready? Uh, I've watched this for the first time a little over 10 years ago when I got on my little Alfred Hitchcock kick. 
Um, and, and coming into this, it was probably the one I was looking forward to the least because I have a, this feeling that a lot of those older action type movies don't age as well for me. Yeah. And then I watched this, and it really doesn't rely on being an action movie at all. It just relies on a really solid plot, a great performance from Cary, very likable performance from Cary Grant. Like, yeah. he's probably the most likable protagonist in these movies we're talking about. I mean, it, he's definitely the he's, most likable. He's definitely protagonist. the most likable male protagonist in any Hitchcock movie that I've ever seen. Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah. He's just because he's really just a normal guy who gets you know caught up in whatever this this scheme is going because he's being you know he's being told that he's someone else when he's not and yeah. being framed for murder. So he's just a normal person that you can is a little bit more relatable than some of other uh, excuse me Hitchcock's other protagonists. I really love the way that Cary Grant plays him too because it, the kind of what he is is he's like this advertising agent, this kind of Madison Avenue style um, guy, and so he plays him very arrogant in a lot of ways, but. It's nice to see that because then he gets put in these impossible situations and he tries to remain cool, but he's also at the same time kind of freaking out, being like, what is happening? Like, yeah. you know, like the whole time. So you, you like to see him be kind of the coolest guy in the room, but then the coolest guy in the room when, like, you know, he's pooping his pants. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, what were, So there's the whole idea of this movie is, like Randy was saying, is it's, it's just a case of mistaken identity with Cary Grant's character, like literally from the start of the film is just mistaken for this other guy and constantly gets being pulled deeper and deeper into this world of spies and spycraft. And the whole time, he's kind of just going along with it. Eventually, he does get into it because he has to clear his name from a possible murder that was also one of the most... I was like, why are you grabbing that knife? Why are you doing the things you're doing yeah, right no, now? <laughs> yeah. It was a you and So many bad decisions. Yeah, he makes a lot of bad decisions throughout the movie where a lot of, a lot of things like... His first decision, go to the police, tell them what happened, uh, was probably great, you know? And it just backfires on him. Yeah, exactly. But everything else from then on is like, this seems really dumb. Well, you should have just gone to the police to begin with. Like, this seems like the thing you should have done from the very beginning. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah, so overall, any scenes and lines you guys liked a lot in the movie? Uh, my favorite line, and because it came from the mother who is just this sassy old lady. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and she just doesn't believe a word that he's saying. And he's trying to rush them rush them off because the people that are coming to look for Cackney or what was what was the guy's name that he was supposed to be? That oh, he was mistaken? It was, uh, Kaplan. Kaplan, yeah. Kaplan, yeah. Frank Kaplan. Frank George Kaplan. George Kaplan. George Kaplan. <laughs> so they think that he's him, a secret government spy. Yeah. And they're coming to kill him or at least get him and capture him. And the mom does not believe any of this as he's trying to rush them off. They even get on the same elevator, and it's a crowded elevator, so no one can make any moves. Yeah. And it's quiet, and then the mom delivers my favorite line of that movie where she says, You gentlemen aren't really here to kill my son, are you? Or or aren't really trying to kill my son, are you? <laughs> it just it cracks me up. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, too, the henchmen in this and the bad guys, they're some of the worst bad guys in all of history of uh, like spy thrillers. So one of the more famous scenes that I was going to kind of bring up was the crop dusting scene. So the whole idea is that Cary Grant thinks that he's going to go meet this Kaplan guy in the middle of this cornfield in the middle, like between Indianapolis, I think in Chicago. And while that's happening, there's this, he's waiting for the guy. And while it's happening, you kind of see this crop dust plane in the distance kind of crop dusting. But then all of a sudden it comes at first, it, it tries to run him over, which doesn't make any sense. And then, and then it starts shooting at him. 
But I was like, of all the things, you could have just had somebody come up with a gun and shoot him in the in the face and move on. And like, why why a crop duster with a yeah, gun? Yeah, that, because it's easiest to escape the scene that way. Yeah, there was nobody on that road. He could have gone I either know. way. <laughs> I'm trying to help out our boy. Yeah, here. yeah. That that scene would definitely felt like you know because it was a huge scene. It's, it's it was it's a big awesome. scene. Yeah, so it's a huge scene, especially for that time, 1959. I think it was. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why it was in there because of course he could have just went into the field and just shot him or something. But yeah, <laughs> when you have a giant crop dusting plane, and the, the thing I thought was most ridiculous within that scene was when. The uh, there's like this fuel truck or oil truck, yeah. whatever it is, coming towards Cary Grant, you know, or George Kaplan in this case, we'll call him. Yeah, and it doesn't quite run over him, but it's like it slows down enough to where uh, he's under the fuel truck, like under, just laying under it That's on the crazy. road, and then the plane. You know, just careens into the side of this oil truck, and there's a massive explosion. But Cary Grant just escapes. That was my no thought too. Was like fire and nothing. What was what was the plan for this plane? Like it was it was making a beeline straight for the oil tank, like. Was it a kamikaze? Yeah, like, it, what was happening? It looked fantastic. It looked it did, amazing it because, awesome. it, you know, I can't imagine seeing that scene back then because now we take it for granted because it's just, it's like, you know, 60, 70 years down the line. Yeah. But it it, it did look incredible at the time, I'm sure, you know, yeah. it was worthwhile mm-hmm. and it needed that big climactic scene in the movie. Any other uh, scenes for you, uh, Don? Uh, no scenes, but I would say, you know, as a video game fan here, I would say a lot of the mo- this movie reminded me a lot of uh, Metal Gear Solid 3. Mm. Um, <laughs> granted, you know, it, it's a little bit of the, that's a little bit more in the Cold War and whatnot, but this, mo- this movie had the, the twists of that where, you know, George Kaplan or, or Cary Grant's character is a pawn, but you don't know what, where he plays in, in the game, right? Like he's, he's being played, but you don't know how or why. Yeah. And things start to unfold and there's like a double cross of a double cross to figure out, you know, he's basically a red herring for the spies to go chase. And that's one of those things that that's really why I love this movie because it did more of like you said, Mike, where it did more telling and, and showing about balance it where it's like it's answering more questions, but it's also getting George deeper into this conspiracy. And you're like, you really want to figure out what what's at the root of all this. Yeah. Every time that you think, you know, the answers, they change the questions throughout exactly. the movie. A certain rowdy person said that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I was saying earlier, there there is something in this movie where I felt that I would have enjoyed seeing the scene later on in the film. And that is pretty early on when they switch over to these random government agents that you've never seen before talking in a room about how there there's this one guy who's getting wrapped up in their investigation oh yeah because they they're basically saying George Kaplan is not real it was just a red herring because they have another spy that's more deeply ingrained in the mm-hmm. in their uh, their operation their, their operation yeah. thank you well, and that, yeah, and I, I think the only thing you could go with that is like, are those guys actually government agent? Like, you know, those those kind of things you could do would be like, well, are they actually even telling the truth? Is George Kaplan real? This guy seems real. We keep hearing about him. He keeps like showing up to people. Even Ava Marie Saint's character is kind of like, you know, you, you don't know how to trust her at first because she does seem to know way too much about what's going on, way too calm under the fact that this like mass murderer is <laughs> is sitting next to her. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's what the movie you know, does it does best is that it, it, it makes it to where you can't really, you don't really know who to trust outside of the spy guys who look like, you know, clowns because that's sort of how they were characterized at the time. Like yeah. they just look like bad guys just looking at them, like the most suspicious people in the room yet. No one suspects them. Right. I don't know. I, I think one of my favorite scenes too, um, was the one where they're in the auction hall 
and he's oh, gonna yeah. try and get out of there. So he just be, he basically just becomes a douche. <laughs> like and that's the only way to get out. Is he's just a raising ju- bids, I think, right? Yeah, but yeah. like in insane ways, either way too much or like he's like thirteen, and then he's like yeah, fourteen dollars, and he's like no, this is. Fourteen hundred, sir. Yeah, here's well, this plush I, teddy bear for a thousand dollars. He's like, for that that piece of junk, I'm not gonna pay more than fourteen dollars for that. That's even more over than the asking price. Yeah. Uh, what do you guys think of Cary Grant as the leading man in this? Uh, he's like I said, he's the most likable protagonist of these three films. Probably, possibly in all of Hitchcock's films. Uh, just this kind of fish out of water. Maybe it, that that has to become James Bond essentially. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> he's like a Bond who doesn't know that he's in a James Bond movie, basically. Yep. Mm-hmm. And mistaken identity was a very, very, very uh, popular genre for Hitchcock. He's done quite a few movies like it. It seems to be one of his favorite things. Yeah, I was reading allusions to this and my my favorite movie, Big Lebowski, mm-hmm. and kind of seeing the the parallels between these two movies. And it's very similar. It's just that the character and the dude is just an insane difference to Cary Grant, like the absolute opposite characters, basically. Yep. Uh, but in the same similar situations, uh, obviously Lebowski's one is much more low stakes and grounded. This one's very much high stakes and kind of over the top. Uh, but yeah, very similar movies in that way. If only Cary Grant's character had a Walter subject. To- Mm-hmm. He needed friends for sure. <laughs> for sure. He's missing his own Donnie. Yeah, exactly. All right, guys, any anything else to say about this movie before we wrap it up? Just a very, very enjoyable movie. It feels like it's the first true action comedy to me. It I, is very humorous. Yeah, I thought it was pretty funny, but again, like I really did love the story. That's really what had me hooked the entire time. Because you know, there's a lot of times where I might watch a movie and you know, I might be playing a game or something, or I might be doing something on the iPad, reading, whatever, and it's like this movie just it, it reeled me in right away like add it the typical slow star where has to establish things in the first 10 15 minutes and then the last two hours whatever it was was just flying by like i i just i wanted to know what happened at the end it did go by really quick yeah yeah it's and it's a lo- i think it's the longest of the three it is yeah and it goes by very quick and every time that you think like okay this is getting a little boring something happens and you're like oh man that's crazy like oh man how, how's he gonna get out of this one how's he gonna get out of this one and the whole time k grant is trying to be the coolest guy in the room and just like also scared the whole time and it just makes the it makes the movie so enjoyable yeah i really enjoyed his performance in this particularly when he's uh talking to the police after they had forced him to oh, drink yeah. a whole bunch of alcohol that was some of the best drunk dialogue mm-hmm. i i can recall I also love when he got picked up by the police after the uh, after the auction, and he's just like, "I'm the guy. I'm the guy you're trying to get. Like, just I'm. You got him. Great job, boys." Like, you know? So I did mention my favorite line, but the auction might be my favorite scene. It's so funny, <laughs> just the way that he's trying to buy time yeah. so that these bad guys don't get him. He has to stay out in the open like that. So he's just trying to drag out this whole auctioning process and be as ridiculous as possible and cause a disturbance. Yeah. And it was just so funny to me. He was great. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. So definitely go and check out North by Northwest if you haven't yet. Again, this is one of those ones where you're going to look at the time. You're going to be like, ah, I'm a millennial. This is way too long for me. But don't do that. Watch the movie. It's so awesome. It beats for beat by beat. It's just great. Definitely check it out. It seems she's hurting you. I meant well. People always mean well. They cluck their thick tongues and shake their heads and suggest oh so very delicately. Of course, I've suggested it myself. 
but I hate to even think about it. She needs me. It's not as if she were a, a maniac, a raving thing. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. All right, then we'll be moving on to our final movie. Don, you want to tell us what movie you picked? All right, fellas. Now, I'm going to call this our main event here. Uh, the movie I chose from Hitchcock is my favorites. It's also one of my favorite movies ever, and it's uh, 1960s Psycho. And in Psycho, Phoenix's secretary, Marion Crane, played by Janet Lee, mother of uh, Jerry, Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, on the lam after stealing $40,000 from her employer in order to run away with her boyfriend, Sam Lewis, is overcome by exhaustion during a heavy rainstorm. Traveling on the back roads to avoid the police, she stops for the night at a ramshackle Bates Motel meets, and meets the polite but high-strung proprietor, Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins, a young man with an interest in taxidermy and a difficult relationship with his mother. So for, this, for me, this movie, fellas, I think everything that is Hitchcock is in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I definitely feel, for me at least, that this movie is the best movie Hitchcock has ever made. I think there's a lot to unpack here with scenes and performances and uh, you know and lines we have in the movie. But for me, you know, I'd seen this. Uh, I think it was after. Oh no, it was when I was younger. It was when I was a kid after the Hitchcock Presents. Uh, but when did you guys first see Psycho, and what did you think of it? Um, the first time I watched it the whole way through was probably around like 10, 15 years ago. Something in that vicinity. Now, this is one of those movies, like I said, it's the most um, parodied movie, yeah. maybe, ever. For sure. And I would say it, influential, too. Like It has both sides of the it coin. It has yes. maybe the most famous scene ever. Mm-hmm. Infamous scene. In- infamous scene, for sure. Yeah. Um, when I first saw it, obviously, I, I really liked it. And it immediately had an impact on me where I thought this is with Rocky and Star Wars for like the best musical score of... My, or at least my favorite musical score. This is absolutely top three all time for me. Yeah, this yeah. is by Alan Silvestri. It's yeah. incredible. He's, and he's I, and while I, we didn't mention Vertigo's music, and it and it is great, it's also fantastic. Same with like, North by Northwest. Yeah, that also they, has they really all have good. great great music, but yeah. I do think that the iconicness of Psycho's music puts it way over the top. It does. Yeah. I think this is like the perfect marriage of, of music and what you're seeing on the screen, yeah. right? Because it's, it's like even in the beginning when uh, Marin's first on the road to escape after she took the 40 grand, like you have those... Uh, all the all the string instruments going mm-hmm. and it's like she has all these thoughts going through her head of like what people will think of her or what they're saying about her in the midst of it like she knows she's in trouble um so i think there's a lot to be said about how music and, and everything comes together with the scenes yeah yeah i had uh only seen this movie once before today i saw it when i was like 15 or 16 you know when you get into that phase where you start like watching movies because you think you're cool. So I was like, I'm going to watch <laughs> yeah, you're your own Artur, because I'm, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Because yeah. I, I enjoy cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, you're so, going to be the next Tarantino. Yeah, exactly. So I watched it then and I hadn't watched it since because like Randy said, it's been, um, homaged and parodied so much in our, our generation, especially, uh, maybe not like our generation as people, um, but the people who are making stuff for us, uh, I feel like they are really influenced. Obviously, Simpsons has a ton of psycho stuff in it, um, but but not just Groaning. A bunch of different shows and movies have had homages or straight up remakes, for shot for shot remakes of it. So I knew a lot of it. This is the second time I've ever watched it, and as an adult, 
who understands a lot of things more and understands movies better. It's so good. And Perkins is so brilliant as an actor in that movie that you, you, the whole time you're watching him, you're just like, God, this guy is the best. Well, How and is that's he- what I was going to bring up next is the performances, like you say, Anthony Perkins, because I think him and Janet Lee are, are, are an amazing pairing. So good. But uh, especially on this watch, because I knew we were going to record you know, the podcast about it. Like I, I was kind of digging deeper into like the visuals of everything and just kind of seeing you know all the scenery. But even then, when you look at Anthony Perkins, like his facial expressions when he's talking, because the whole thing with this movie is that it's his mother. You don't see his mother. His mother's in this in the house that's behind the motel. Mm-hmm. So Norman is just this really awkward, bizarre guy who gets pretty defensive when people talk about his mother. And you could see that because before when he's talking to uh, to Marion Crane, like they're having like a calm conversation about his taxidermy and everything. He's really passionate about that. And he's like, you know, just casual. But then the moment she starts asking questions about his mother, you see his face change. Like his eyebrows start to wince a little more. And like he just gets really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned the performance of Perkins. I was going to ask this question after wrapping this up uh, regarding all of our movies. Uh, who, What would you say was your favorite performance? But are we unanimous that yeah. it would absolutely be Anthony Perkins? It's like, absolutely. Yeah, because, there's no, because what he is tasked to do in this movie requires such great acting for it to go well that none of these other guys... Uh, have to go near that because that's not what they're asked to do. They're asked to just act like the character, but his character, he's he's basically acting like almost like two different people the whole time, yeah. and he pulls both of them off so well that uh, that you can't you can't say anybody else. It's, it's, yeah, like James Stewart and Cary Grant, they're very self assured characters, and Norman Bates is far from that. He is very insecure and, he's <laughs> and almost, it shows yeah and he's a normal guy until he isn't right yeah. that's the whole thing is like he's you know you would think he's just a normal person working as a cashier you know at a at a at a, ho- at a motel yeah but there's more beneath that too uh, and another thing that i think i that struck me in this movie like i've seen this movie like i don't know how many times over the years like it's it's genuinely one of my favorite movies mm. but it's all the, the the metaphors and the imagery that hitchcock, hitchcock uses so in the beginning of the movie when you first introduced to marion and um, she's in like a, I think it's like a hotel room with with Sam. She's wearing like, you know, she has like a, a white top on and like a white dress and everything like that. But then after she steals the money, she's all black. She's all black. Mm-hmm. And that's another big thing about the movie too is the whole thing is in black and white, right? Which is pretty unusual for a Hitchcock movie in 1960. Did that when you guys first had seen it, or I guess because you were a little bit older maybe, but did that ever struck you strike you as weird like you know getting to a black and white movie it made you think that it was older than it is that's true like, yeah it made you think that this is oh this must be when when Alfred Hitchcock became really famous and it was like no far from it this was late Hitchcock yeah it you didn't I didn't realize when I was younger that the black and white was a choice I thought that it was just had to be that way so you're right it definitely it's interest. it not only is it interesting but it makes the movie better uh, to do it the way he did it, it de- definitely makes the movie way better, and I think it just uh, was a brilliant choice on his part. It yeah. does. Also, it might have been uh, one of the only ways to get a movie like this made. hundred percent. Try to explaining to a studio that you're gonna do some of the things in this movie that never been filmed before. Oh yeah, that beautiful starlet that we're gonna base the movie behind. She's dying like a third or halfway into this movie. Uh, in a horrific, in way. a horrific <laughs> manner. Yeah, it's and, gonna be terrifying. It's and then the 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 finale, the the end of this movie, trying to pitch that to some executives back in the late fifties, and then the only way I can imagine them passing it is like, oh yeah, we're also gonna 
uh, only need to be on these very few locations, and we're gonna film on black and white film. This not gonna cost a thing. Well, <laughs> and that yeah, and the movie was filmed I think for like eight hundred something thousand, which is really modest because even North by Northwest, or I forgot if it was vertical, one of the two was like four point something million. Yeah. So there's a huge difference in budget, but also like you said, Randy. This was an act of choice because there's a, a great documentary on, uh, you can find it on Tubi, it's free. It's called 7852, and it's, it's an hour and a half long documentary about, you know, all the, how, how Hitchcock's directed the scene, and specifically around the shower scene, but he was in an interview where he, he said specifically, like, I, had, I, I chose black and white for, the, for that purpose because it would be impossible for as gruesome as that scene was mm -hmm. to get, a, you know, to do that in full color. And it actually makes the scene much more effective because, and also you think that the blood going down the drain is, you know, so vicious, but it was just watered down chocolate syrup apparently. So they could get mm -hmm. around with tricks like that. Right. Yeah. And it, even by today's horror standards, it's still a pretty violent, grisly scene for a movie back then. It's like, you know, watching it, I watched it like last week with my wife who had never seen it before. And, and we were both like, whoa, this is really intense. You well, know? it's great too, because you know, that scene where you see the silhouette of what you assume to be, you know, Norman's mother because she has like this appearance of like a woman as much as a silhouette can give away. But there's no music. It's just the shower running. That's, I think, what makes it more effective is there's nothing bringing you up to the tension of her getting killed. Because for all you know, like that could be his mother and like she's just going to, you know, tear the curtain off and yell at her or something. But no, it's like it's far more worse than that. Like she's, she's there to kill her. Yeah. And then the moment that curtain opens, you hear the most probably iconic music in film history. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would say... You know what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, next yeah. to Jaws. And maybe, Mike, you can include it like right here I, or something. Yeah. Yeah, just an iconic scene in in general, but that that music is what makes it feel still so effective today. Because if they did not have that music and it was just something else, we would not be saying how terrifying that scene is. We'd be like, oh, that's did you see the shot where the knife didn't even pierce the skin? Mm -hmm. Like he clearly is just they're missing over and over and over. But with that music, it's just so unnerving. It's still so effective, even. For today. Well, and also the, the a consideration to make too is that you know a lot of movies back then they had the shots weren't cut that quickly, right? Mm -hmm. So you're in a theater, you're used to seeing these slow shots kind of paying across, and that's really what most of the movie is like. It's just slow and sort of you know it's not its own pace because there's really not much going on. It's not supposed to be. Yeah. And then that scene happens so abruptly, and there's all these quick cuts of him or you know of um of the mother slashing at her, yeah. and then at the end the aftermath it's a, it just goes back to what it was. So it's like it's slowly pulling out from. The shot on her eye, which is incredible looking. <laughs> like, they have the 4K uh, version now, and it looks it amazing. It looks brilliant, yeah. It is the best watch shot the same, of this film. Yeah, did we all watch the same one then? Because I yeah. watched that too, yeah. I was like, this is brilliant. Yeah. You uh, know what else is uh, really controversial in that scene? When she flushes the toilet. It was the it was yeah the first time that a toilet had ever been flushed on a, a movie. I have and read it, that too, and it caused as much controversy for the censors as the murder scene, which is crazy. <laughs> I to didn't me. know about that part. Yeah, I read about it. Uh, I read about it after this, and yeah, I, I don't really know exactly the truth to it uh, per se. But from what I read, is that 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 scene was very con it, it, they almost had to take it out, but Hitchcock had a fight to keep it in because mm -hmm. he wanted this to be as real. They he wanted the audience to connect to her being just taking a shower in a hotel like everybody does you usually use the bathroom before you take the shower or vice versa whatever um so it was important to keep in because they wanted 
to draw you in like oh she's just a normal person doing her normal thing and well, yeah what was wrong with that generation like did you have to like sneakily flush the toilet yeah i know your parents weren't around <laughs> i know like, you yeah. run the water over it or something yeah yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, and another, so I'd say another bold choice is you have Janet Lee, who's the, you know she's a cover star with Anthony Perkins, and then she's dead in, in about half an hour in the movie, mm-hmm. and that's what precipitates the next sort of section of the movie, the, act, the second act where Sam and you know her sister are trying to go find her, and uh, well I'll, I'll go back a little bit, so that's when Norman finds out that his mother killed Marion, and then he covers her, covers it up like he throws her in like this I don't know the swamp or bog behind the motel or something like that, and yeah. then. Then her family goes looking for it, and then that's when everything starts to unfold for Norman, and you know what's happening with him, and you're still seeing the mother, at, you know, as a silhouette inside the house. So, and I think that's what I think separates this from other horror movies is like it does, it starts to bring those, you know, all, all the walls are closing on Norman slowly but sure. Like he has the detective, the private eye, going out to you know recoup the forty thousand dollars. He's dead because mother kills him, mm-hmm. and then you know the movie goes along where it's like. There's a murder after murder, and the thing that I didn't realize was he'd been doing this for a while. Like, yeah, two I, other I didn't girls. connect. Yeah, there's at least two others, and I think that's one thing I didn't realize when I first seen this when I was younger was that this isn't like a first time thing. <laughs> like Norman's been doing this a while. This is a common thing where he has that peephole, and he's mm-hmm. you know specifically getting these these women into certain rooms in there, and then they die because mother comes out and kills them. Well, and you'd think too that he would be a little bit more a uh, little bit better at covering his tracks because a couple like the way he gets found out by the private detective is like yeah norman why didn't you get rid of that like you didn't even have to have that in there what that seems like a really uh, odd thing to leave behind in your crime scene you know yeah (laughs) and yeah and then so the movie eventually climaxes to the point where you know uh marion's sister finds norman's mother in the basement and it turns out she's just you know a skeleton at that point, but she's dressed in her, in her, in the, in the dress that she was buried in. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole thing. I think the big reveal leading up to this was amazing because even then you're still questioning it where they're over at the sheriff's house trying to, you know, get them to court or trying to get them to go to Norman's house and talk to the mother. And then that's when the sheriff reveals like, no, that's, it's impossible. Like, her, you know, his mother died 10 years ago. There's no way. And then you have Sam Loomis who was at Bates motel. And he says, no, like I saw someone in the window. Yeah. I, I definitely saw someone in the window. And that's when they go up there and they, you know, they, they, you know, Sam keeps Norman busy, which is great because he's just like asking him all these dumb questions, like try to, you know, it was really keep funny. him down the, there. Yeah. The suspicion <laughs> is that Norman's motive is that she had a, a lot of money a lot. on her. And I like so that too. So the, the fact that she had all this money on her makes her a target to be murdered. Yes. And but it wasn't a murder for greed. He he grabbed the the money that was in the bunch of rolled up uh, the rolled up newspaper. She had it hidden in there. He was completely oblivious to it. It goes in the trunk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, yeah. He didn't even know. He didn't even care. It wasn't a part of his reason why he did it. Yeah. Yeah. And then the the other big reveal is when uh, you know the mother turns in that seat, which I thought was really cool. And it's a pretty terrifying. Like I, I again, I can't. This if there's a movie I wish I could have seen in the theater at the time, 100%. it would have been this. Especially when they reveal who mother is and she's just like a skeleton because they're in the basement and there's like light bobbing back and forth above her. And then Mary or uh, Marion's sister you know, turns the, the chair around and then all of a sudden it's just this, you know, skeleton that just bobs and stops. And then it pauses for a brief moment right before Norman comes in screaming with a knife. And then that's when the movie ends. And, uh, there's a, I think it's a psychologist. I believe he is. Yeah. The police psychologist. Who is kind of ridiculous at times the way he talks, but yes. Yeah. yeah it is the worst scene. Of yeah, the movie. yeah. I would say it's the <laughs> yeah. hardest scene to watch because he's there to explain the entire movie to you, mm-hmm. but he does it so succinctly and precisely that it just sounds like, Hey, if you didn't understand what the hell happened for the last hour and a half, yeah. 
It's okay. We'll let's, tell you the whole thing. We'll let's un- recap. We'll enroll it for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think it's it's fine as, as as a recap. It's totally unnecessary. But it's interesting that that's when he's like, no, like, you know, Norman and his mother are the same person. Like, it's just a split personality. And at that point, that's when Norman's in the cell with a blanket as mother with the, with voiceover. Yep. And to me, the movie that's finishes great. in, like, one of my favorite ways to end where as the screen fades to black, there's, like, this faded, you know, couple frames of Norman's mother's skeleton over his face and the movie cuts to black and then or excuse me then it cuts to them dragging marion's car out of the bog mm-hmm. and the movie ends yeah and that's it that's the whole movie and for me you can't get much better than that for for hitchcock no that the very final moments of that movie is a great 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 ending it's it's brilliant. preceded by the the scene that i feel is the weakest because it's just kind of hand-holding you explaining it what does happened. and this but also at the time they they didn't this really is what I th- this is not a common plot point when we talked about <laughs> wishing to go back and see this for the first time this had never happened before this type of uh, mania in this way it like uh dealing with things like you know, they even brought up like um, trans issues and things like that in this movie. And that had never been talked about. So you really do need to hold the hand of the audience through this because bit. most of the people probably in there is like, what the heck is happening? Why is this happening? Why yeah. are they? Because you know, Norman would dress as his mom. Like he would have the, the same dress. Like, and talk the, to himself yeah, as his mom. The sheriff's wife's like, yeah, I, I chose it with him. Periwinkle blue. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's wearing with a wig. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it's a, I think it's a lot to unload at the end to the audience because it's also like, yeah, I don't understand. It's like, it's a little too explicit. Yeah. You know? And and there's parts where it's like, okay, yes, you definitely need to explain that part where they talk about how Norman's mom, like Norman was upset with his mom for getting with this guy. So like his altered personality gets upset with him whenever he fancies a girl. So that's like why this happens. And so I get that part, but there's other parts where it's like, yeah, we know. Yeah, we know. Yeah, yeah we know. Exactly. <laughs> and, and maybe that's just our benefit because it's like, you know, we we kind of had the history been, of it at the time. And uh-huh. again, back then, like I can't imagine what people thought. It's like, maybe they were confused until the end. They're like, oh, it makes perfect sense. Could you, you know? imagine going to this movie for the first time and like bringing somebody who was not prepared for this kind of movie? Well, and from what I had seen and read in you know documentaries over the years, like they said that like people would be running out of the theater screaming, mm-hmm. like people would be traumatized at the at the shower scene specifically and, yeah. and the reveal. So yeah, it, it's it's one of those movies, and then there would be lines out the door to get into the theater to see it because everyone there was no way to really there was word of mouth back then. It wasn't like it was on the internet like or anything. Yeah, you know? this is you like had the, to see what this was. The Silence of the Lambs of its time, or like the Saw, you know, but like not in a but uh, probably crude. occupying a bigger cultural. A mil- yeah, uh, not saying that they're space. like the same because obviously Saw is nowhere near as good as Psycho in any way. But I'm saying like the the level of shock value that the audience gets exactly is the yeah, same the shock factor the, that like yeah and it was like hostile style. It, they, there wasn't anything like it before. This movie was very ahead of its time for you know certain tropes in film anyway. Like you mentioned the whole scene where they're with the sheriff. Is that the first movie you can think of that uses the but she's been dead for 10 years yeah, kind yeah. of reveal. Like that's such a very common and overused uh, it's, it's, plot it's, it's a very like, now. It's like a pulpy yeah. kind of, you know, fiction thing. Mm-hmm. Like it's just. <laughs> and not even, you know, even like, uh, obviously we bring the, the Simpsons have parodied it to death, but oh, yeah. even like the Lisa needs braces dental plan mm-hmm. is kind of straight from the psycho when she's yeah. in her head thinking about well, all the things going on. And, and it, again, like this movie's reference in so much, it's influenced so much. Yeah. Like that documentary, Stanley 52 does go, you know, it has a bunch of clips of movies that had shower scenes or, Scream is, again, like, that's one of yeah. my favorite movies where, you know, they're influenced by Anthony Perkins. They even 
quote him saying, you know, we all go a little mad sometimes. I think it was something like that. Yeah, and Drew Barrymore and uh, basically is Jason Lee or Jason Lee. Wow, Janet Lee. <laughs> Janet Lee. Uh, she's basically Janet Lee in, in Scream, obviously with a lot less scream time, but the same same idea. Yeah, uh, the, big star. The, uh, obviously, a lot of future horror movies have borrowed from this very heavily. Uh, what was the doctor's name for Michael Myers? Loomis. Sam Loomis. Yeah. yeah. What was the killer in Scream? Oh, Billy Loomis. Yeah, yeah that's right. It's not an accident. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. yeah, and it per- it pervades even to this day with the type of things that you see in this movie and the way that it's shot and the way it's written. It does. Like it's it's genuinely like you talking about what we could revisit. Like I told you, I was like I would watch Psycho again. Like I yeah, watched it's it. The easiest the one for night. me to digest. It's also the shortest, right? It's, it's I think by so. far the shortest. It's, it's like, only a, like an hour, hour and forty or something. Yeah, an hour and forty. Yeah. And yeah. it's very to the point. Small hour and fifty, just small, under two hours. Yeah, small plot, like very, like not too many scenes, not exactly. you know, very, very um, enclosed. And then a big cast, like there's really five, six, six people, people in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Two, two like people in the very beginning that you don't really see anymore. This movie has has been parodied and done so much that they literally made a remake that was a shot for shot remake. Yeah, with <laughs> Vince Vaughn and Anne Heche. Yeah, there it, was one thing in the remake that was not there. And, and that was uh, Vince Vaughn and the Peephole. And yeah, a little that, too yeah. much time lingered on that. I guess that's what Gus Van Zandt really had to say about it. Yeah. <laughs> it was. I remember seeing that. So, so I remember seeing that. Um, you know, I think it was when it came out like on DVD or something like that. Because I know I definitely didn't care for it when it was in theaters. It was not good. Exactly. It's one of those things where it's it's a literal like Mike said, shot for shot remake. It doesn't really do much to you know change anything but that's also to his detriment because it's just not a good movie why wouldn't i just watch psycho <laughs> I, yeah exactly i would watch psycho <laughs> 10 times over than watching the remake like why, why would i even watch it well, I, I have the best version here this doesn't make it better yeah, there's in no any reason way. it's like with robocop the same thing like i'll just watch robocop i'm not gonna watch the remake there's no reason for it there's movies where you can understand why it would be visually better to do it in this era but like psycho's not one of them it's be- it's better because it's not visually better because it, it it's limited to the medium of the time. it's more terrifying because it has that old movie feature to it yeah because it looks very cheap and gritty yeah which is great which makes it so much better and then uh there there were some sequels uh i will shout out give a big shout out to base motel the series that's i love love that show show. i've rewatched it a couple times over the years and it's it's really fantastic like it's what's the name of the actor who plays Norman. Freddie Highmore. Freddie Highmore. Yeah, and Shout there's Vera Farmiga as, uh, as Norma, and she does an amazing job. And there's also... Um, oh, I was a big fan of her. God, who's the guy from Lost? Nestor uh, Carbonell. Oh, uh, Nestor, yeah, yeah, yeah So, yeah. so fantastic. I love that show. I'd rewatch that. Uh, there's Cycle 2, 3, and 4. I would say Cycle 2 is very watchable and good. 3 yeah. and Psycho 4, two not is so much. Very good. Yeah, Cycle I, 2 is really I good. I plan on watching it tomorrow, actually. 3 is... I would like to rewatch. May I'll do that, too. I think that's what I'm doing. <laughs> no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick a friend. We're going to watch Psycho 2, have some dinner. Yeah. 3 is not good, and 4 is basically like a clip show of like 1 and 2 a little bit, and like background. Is it go back in no, time? No, that's what to, 4 is, Yeah, yes. 4 is like a basically Where a he's show. on Where he's on a radio, radio show, show with CCH mm-hmm. Pounder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do like it's that good. concept of that movie. Yeah. It's not as well executed. Three, I did not like whatsoever, but it had Lapidus from Lost. Uh, four, <laughs> That's right. That. Yeah. yeah. Four was a made-for-TV movie, too. It makes sense. Yeah, it feels so like it. It looks like, and feels like it. It, it, it felt yeah. like a movie that you can go to commercial a lot with. And yeah. I did not see these sequels for a long time, because why would anyone make a sequel to Psycho? If they made a sequel to Psycho, that sounds like a cheap cast grab, and I'm not about it. So I avoided it I think the until first... just a few years ago when I watched Psycho 2, and yeah. I realized that this is actually an outstanding horror movie, yeah. or... or thriller movie i don't know if i'd classify it as horror as much i think the first one i ever watched those sequels was four and it was on i don't know if you guys remember like uh back when we were kids amc would do like a monster movie marathon yeah, thing, I love that. and yep. it was always awesome because they would show a lot of violence in it which is like all right you know um 
And this one was one of the ones on there. So I watched that a lot. Uh, I watched it before. I think I only, I think I watched it. I might've watched it before I saw Psycho. Cause I might've saw this when I was like 11. Oh and, wow. Like, yeah. Yeah. That would make like, sense. Yeah. I have no idea what it's referencing. Like, you know? I will say, cause Bob would call me out on my brother, Bob, because I had originally seen Psycho 2. It was like on Cinemax or whatever movie channel was back then. And I didn't like it back then. I was like, oh, this is not great. But then I rewatched it. Uh, I think once since then. And then I rewatched it during the pandemic, during quarantine. I was like, damn, this is a really great sequel. Like, it's 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 tough because the sequel, Psycho Two, was I think almost twenty years after. It's well over twenty years, twenty three, it's twenty something, something it's, like that, right? So, so it came out in nineteen sixty, and then Psycho Two came out was like eighty three or something, something like yeah, that. Yeah. So between eighty three and eighty six, I'm gonna say. So it already had the challenge of being a twenty year too late sequel. Yeah. Back even though Psycho didn't need a sequel, but it did a really great job with no one trying to reacclimate himself to to being a normal person. So I would say of the sequels. Watch Psycho 2, maybe dabble in 3, and then, you know, I, I don't know if you want to temper yourself with 4, but I probably I, would I don't know. I, I would 3 say, is terrible. I would say definitely watch Psycho 2, maybe watch Psycho 4 for, for kind of giving, planting the seeds for what could become Bates Motel. And then That's watch true, Bates I guess. I would say, yeah. ex, and just skip Psycho 3. Yeah. Well, and then kind of bring it back a little bit, because I wanted to talk about Perkins again, just briefly. Cause I, I did too. His, <laughs> his acting in the very beginning scene is so good that you almost like want to stand up and applaud like how well he's doing because he makes you especially if you watch it once because then you go wow he is really even i know what's happening i know what's going to happen you know you catch all his mannerisms but he is so good at playing the because in a lot of ways he is and in it so he he has to play it so straight that he's this innocent wide-eyed kid who's just trying to do what's best you know for his family and you know, for his mom and all that stuff. And he comes off so genuine and heartfelt and like, you really care about him and you're like, Oh, I feel bad for this kid. He's like, he, yeah, he's, just, like he's alone in the middle of nowhere in the freeway, yeah. just running a motel. And he's so kind and, and just want, and, and Perkins does such a good job that even what, knowing what's going to happen and knowing what's going to go through this movie, you still empathize with, the psycho killer who you know is about to murder this this woman like that's it's so crazy yeah, him specifically like you could try to separate himself from his mom's side but it's him yeah it's it's, it's two sides of the same coin for and him. he it's does crazy. so good at playing both sides that it's just one of them it's honestly one of the most brilliant performances an actor i would say ever in it history is. It's, of a, it's an iconic performance it and it gets better throughout the movie because at first he is that very innocent and almost sweet but little not so confident guy yeah and then you see after she's she's dead and he's covered up her, her death uh anytime someone's questioning him you can see him slowly break get. down mm-hmm. yep. like he is so deeply uncomfortable and it's so visibly obvious yep. it just felt like the most honest performance of all these movies and my favorite hitchcock performance period it's a bummer that perkins didn't get um, even more i mean oh, he had a good career like i'm not gonna hate on it he did great but uh he, it's so brilliant here it's it's crazy that he didn't get more more roles well, it's exactly, and it's weird because it's, I don't even know if he was typecast after this or what happened, but it's really surprising that this is like his, the role he's known for. There's really nothing yeah. else after that. Yeah, other than like the sequels to these movies mm-hmm. and, and kind of other Psycho horror Psycho 2, he gives another great performance. Yeah. Like, that's, he's an amazing actor. It, it's, it wasn't limited to Psycho 1, and then he's just kind of riding the coattails. He has a really great uh, performance in Psycho 2. Agreed, agreed. So, anything else on Psycho? No, I just, you know, for me, I, I will always profess my love for this movie. And like I said, it's it's one of my top movies of all time. Like, I can rewatch it anytime. It is one of my top movies of all time, too. Uh, Vertigo is my favorite movie from the 1950s. 
Psycho is my favorite movie from the 1960s. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll say this too. Uh, you know, even though I picked North by Northwest as my favorite of the Hitchcock movies, this is probably Hitchcock's best movie as far as just um, him as a director. He does so brilliantly in this. And the reason why is because he doesn't have a big budget. It's just him knowing exactly what he wants and being have this brilliant creative mind for what he can he knows is going to work and not work and not compromising for any of that and putting up a brilliant a lot of times directors these days they get cut out of like the the process to of the end result of the movie and it's just great to see a director who got to do whatever he wanted and here's the brilliance of it and you had the silver bullet that was anthony perkins yeah that, whoever chose him or cast him was was flawless there's no one else who could have done that no yeah, great casting choice like i said i was gonna ask our favorite performance in that, but I knew pretty quickly that it was unanimous and we're already on the topic of psycho. Let's go ahead and just talk, single him out right now and talk about it. Yeah. He's so good in it. And the end, the end face when he's smiling at the camera as I guess he's his fully his mom now at that point, at that point, the mom's taken over. So yeah. that's her voice over, over yeah. him, over him. Yeah. And so like, and the mom's like, Oh, you got to smile. So everybody thinks you're innocent or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so and- he has the creepiest, unhinged smile on his face that just leaves you so unsettled in your seat seeing this person who's clearly just out of their mind yeah and there's a fly that's on his on his uh wrist and the mom over a voice service says like well look you know they would say she'd never harm her fly like to show that you know she's gonna get norman out of this however she's going to but this is another mess that he's made that she has to clean up when yeah when norman was norman it was the reverse where it's like his mother had killed a woman, so now he's, you know, had to clean up her mess. So now his mom's like, no, like I, I've taken over. Like this is, yep. Norman can't do it anymore. Okay, so I did have a, just a few minor questions before we wrap up here. This sure. covers everything. Uh, between these three movies, favorite scene? Uh, I mean, oh, I don't want to go first, but I'm pretty sure right, I'm going to say. It. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm going to say everybody's. I have to say it's it's, it's the, the shower scene. scene. It has yeah, to be. Like, the shower it's, scene. It's the most yeah. iconic. But again, it's like I could pick apart Psycho with you know all the other scenes it has. Like I really do love the scene where he's you know he gave, he made her like a sandwich. I think it was like peanut butter and jelly sandwich. He's just talking about his taxidermy, because again that kind of shows you more about Norman. But again, it also shows how great Anthony Perkins is because he's establishing how nice Norman is mm-hmm. before everything just goes to hell. Yeah, I, I would say the shower scene. Yeah, if that's another one that could definitely be unanimous, I believe. Yeah, the only other thing I put, uh, not even close, but the only other scene I can even think of was the uh, Mount Rushmore um, end scene. Oh, that was really Northwest, pretty Where they're like yeah, scaling the down Mount Rushmore, which is crazy. Which um, brings us to the very next question. Best ending of these movies. Oh, man. I think as much as I love the ending, it's such a James Bond ending for North by Northwest. I got to go with the psycho. Um, well, it depends on what you consider the ending. I, I think the smiling face at the end. It, is that's really the, the, ver- end. the best ending shot, I would say. But I do feel the, the scene right before it leading into that is the weakest part of the yeah, movie. So it depends on what so you that, consider ending. That's what would pre- prevent me from picking it. So my pick would be for my movie Vertigo. That that whole ending scene going up the bell tower yeah, and what really happens is scene. really unnerving. Because <laughs> you're just getting the absolute best of the performances from both the actor and actress. And then the, the shocking ending where the nun walks up there, frightens Kim Novak's character so much so that she stumbles back and she falls out the bell tower for real this time. Yeah. And gotta get just, a railing this on that is bell, what tower, happens. Uh, bell tower, man. All of that obsession, <laughs> all of that compliant. obsession from James Stewart's character. This is where it le- led him. Yeah, he had to relive that, that moment again, except for real. Yep. 
yeah. my, my bias is going to show, obviously, but it, it's psycho. I, I would say I, I completely agree with the sort of over-explained end with the, uh, the, the therapist or psychologist. But to me, that's like a small blemish on what is an amazing story from beginning to end. Because this movie will it'll grip you no matter what. And, and for me, it depends on what you mean by end. Because like I think if you have the ending shot of his face, it's the most iconic shot it's in the great. history of cinema, maybe. Yeah. And um, with the shower scene included. So, but I will also say the end where you think that Cary Grant and Ava Marie Saint are done for, and that they're gonna fall off the side, and then the bad guy gets shot, and it's very James Bondy. If like after that, if it just went da na na da na, like I would have been even more impressed with that movie. Um, but yeah, I, I have to go with the ending shot of Norman. In, yeah, in- I mean, they've I've seen posters of that shot of that mm-hmm. frame where it's like the skull is over his mm-hmm. face. It's amazing. Yeah. All right, and then our our last question: uh, favorite lead, co-star leading lady. Um, so I don't know. Would you say that Janet, Janet Lee? Yeah. Yeah. Would you she, would, say she would definitely be the one okay. for Psycho. Okay. Yes. Um, I really liked Eva Marie Saint in North by Northwest. She was so like cool as a cucumber, just like Cary Grant. She, like I said, if we were looking at James Bond, she reminded me a lot of like the James Bond style, um, actresses in those movies. Uh, I just really liked her at, so I'm going to pick Eva Marie Saint. All right. How about you, Don? Uh, I have to say the original sc- Scream Queen. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I got a feeling we were all just going to go with our, yeah, our choice. I, and I will. I am going with Kim Novak in. She's Vertigo. a close second for me, but I think just Janet Lee with what she can, you know, contribute to Psycho. It's amazing. It, it's yeah. It's iconic. Um, it's just a problem is that she's only in half. Yeah, yeah. That's why not even half. She's like <laughs> a third even, of the movie. Yeah, yeah that's well, to be very short. To be fair, Ava Marie Saint is only in like half the movie too. For she is. Uh, North by North, and that's why that's the biggest reason I'm picking Kim Novak. She is by far the second most important character in this movie. Mm-hmm. It's not even close. Not she's Midge. featured in it the most, and she is stunningly beautiful. I would be completely obsessed with her too. Maybe, you know, let her wear what she wants, though. I don't know if I'm going to go that far like yeah, James that Stewart weird. does. Choose her, her suits. Little, little weird there. Mm-hmm. So, if you've never seen these films before and you didn't mind the spoilers from, you know, because that's your fault. You should have seen these movies before by now. But don't let that distract you from going out and watching these films. I know we couldn't actually decide on, like, what is the objectively the best one of these films. You can't. It's not fair. It, it's not. Because, for one thing, we've got a, a fantastic early action comedy. Mm-hmm. We've got a genre film that kind of ended up defining a genre to come. And then you have, like, Hitchcock's magnum opus of filmmaking with Vertigo. They, they're just totally three distinct things, as Mike was saying yeah, earlier. Yeah, it's too hard to compare. It's like apples and oranges and pears. <laughs> and whichever one you prefer is probably the one that is in your more genre of interest, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, real quick, I was going to say, too, is like Randy was saying, if you haven't seen them, but also if you have seen these and you haven't seen them in a while, like really go back and watch them again because they are that good. You can watch any of these three movies multiple times and you'll enjoy them each time and you'll pick up new things that you didn't realize the first time new mannerisms Hitchcock's great with those like not easter eggs I'd say but just things that you wouldn't really pick up when you when he you lets everything it. breathe he doesn't have to rush to anything mm-hmm. yeah alright well thank you for listening if you've actually made it this far through all of our rambling once again thank you Please join us next time. We're going to be discussing our favorite movies of the year. And that doesn't necessarily mean movies that just came out this year. So with that said, on behalf of myself, Mike, and Don, have a great day. A boy's best friend is always his mother.